0: Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at Schwab.com/slash WashingtonWise. That's schwab.com slash WashingtonWise.
1: From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
0: I've always sort of hated the term, have you ever seen anything like it? Because that is generally said to someone who's standing in front of a giant burning building or something just exploded and you want to say, of course not, no one has. But we say that again and again and again and again during these four years with the president. And there is just an endless string of surprises.
1: That's Martha Raddatz. She's the chief global affairs correspondent at ABC News and the co-anchor of This Week with George Stephanopoulos. Raddatz's story journalism career has taken her from the war zones of Iraq and Afghanistan to the White House briefing room and the presidential debate stage. She's also traveled around the country to better understand the forces that led to the Trump presidency. Raditz joins me this week to discuss what she's learned in her travels, how Donald Trump has changed journalism, and whether we should be concerned about the recent upheaval at the Pentagon. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Lee, who lives in Decatur, Georgia. Hello, Preet. We are working hard in Georgia to get our two Democratic candidates elected January 5th. If there is then a tie, 50 Dems and 50 Republicans, from what party is the majority leader selected? Lee, who, as I've said, is a resident of Georgia, is of course referring to the two runoff Senate races going on in Georgia that will decide the ultimate fate of the Senate. If the Democrats win both of them, the chamber will be evenly split, 50-50 between senators who are either Democrats or caucus with the Democrats versus Republicans. So to answer your question, we went back and did a little bit of research to refresh our recollections. It turns out there's only been a 50-50 split three times in American history. Once in 1881, once in 1953, and most recently within our memory at the start of the second George Bush's presidency after the 2000 election. So for a brief time, then Republican leader Trent Lott, who was the Senate majority leader in name, shared power with the Democratic leader, Tom Daschle. And they worked out a kind of an interesting agreement. So Dick Cheney, obviously, was a deciding vote, the 51st vote. Lott retained the title of majority leader. And the GOP had all of the committee chairs. But the makeup of each committee was evenly split between Democrats and Republicans. You usually don't have that. As was funding allocations for staffers, as was office space. And these things, I can tell you, as a former Senate staffer, you know, maybe not the most important things in America but very important to the staff. The Senate also adopted an interesting and unique rule that allowed either Lott or Daschle to move bills and nominations to the floor if there was a tie or a deadlock in the committee. That, of course, didn't last long because a few months later, Senator Jim Jeffords of Vermont left the Republicans to join with the Democrats and caucus with them, giving them a very tiny majority. And then the Republicans took back the Senate outright in 2002. So what would happen this time around if it was 50-50? I don't think that circumstances are similar to what they were like just 20 years ago. It's hard to imagine a similar power-sharing agreement, even with respect to internal rules of the Senate, between Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer. So if the result after the January 5th runoffs is 50-50 in the Senate, the situation is the opposite of what we had in 2000. Senator Charles Schumer, Chuck Schumer, would become the majority leader because Vice President Kamala Harris would have the deciding vote. Is it possible there would be some kind of power-sharing arrangement with respect to office space and the like? I doubt it because things are more partisan and polarized now, but it's possible. So look, everyone who wanted Trump to be gone and wanted Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to be elected, there's still more work to do. A lot hinges upon whether or not the Senate is in the control of Democrats or Republicans. A lot of Joe Biden's agenda can either be pushed forward or stymied depending on what happens in the Senate. So I'm glad, Lee, you and others in Georgia and around the country are gonna be working hard in those Senate runoff races. Mm This question comes from Twitter user Josh Braun. Hashtag AskPreet. Is there any realistic limit to the number of specious lawsuits the Trump campaign can file? Or can they continue flooding the zone with BS indefinitely just to gum up the works? Nope. Apparently no limit. (laughs) They've filed many, 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 as you have seen. And our, our friend and former podcast guest, Mark Elias, keeps kind of a running tally going with respect to the cases that he is working on on Twitter. I think the last time I checked last night, the Trump campaign was 1 and 25. We have a free and open legal system in this country, and there are limitations on whether or not a good faith lawsuit can be brought and whether or not the opposing party can move for sanctions and or get attorney's fees, depending on the circumstances and the jurisdiction. But this is a desperate last ditch attempt for Donald Trump to try to change the outcome, which reasonable people understand to be a foregone conclusion. We don't have a lawsuit quota system in this country. You can bring them as often as you want. And clearly, Donald Trump is trying to break a record. This question comes from Twitter user DBR Pro. Could the president pardon for future crimes, or would they all have to be committed before January 20th, 2021? Hashtag ask Preet. Well, that's an interesting question. And I think the clear answer is no, you cannot pardon for future crimes. I know no doctrine by which any executive, either a governor or a president, under any understanding of pardon law or policy could give a get out of jail free card to a person indefinitely going into the future. It just doesn't work that way. The confusion sometimes arises from the following distinction. It is true that you can pardon someone, the president can pardon someone for a crime not yet charged, but it has to have been committed during the presidency. And the example that we give all the time on this show and in other places was President Ford's pardon of Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon had not been charged with anything yet in any federal court. But Ford, within the discretion of his constitutional powers, preemptively pardoned Richard Nixon for any crimes he may have committed against the United States during his time as president. You, can, you cannot give someone a blank check to, in the future, murder or rape or defraud. That just doesn't work. This question comes from Twitter user and C's. Good name. Hi, Preet. Given the proliferation of alternative right-wing news channels like OANN and Newsmax, and the damaging misinformation they put out, is there a case for revisiting the First Amendment? Hashtag askPreet. So I wanna say right off the bat, no. The First Amendment is the first one in the Bill of Rights for a reason. It's a bedrock of freedom in this country. It's a hallmark of our democracy. And I think it is a dangerous business to try to figure out ways to whittle away First Amendment freedoms. So I wanna be clear on that. In our democracy, we believe in the proposition, the truth of the proposition, that sunlight, sunshine, is the best disinfectant. And the antidote to bad speech or incorrect speech or disinformation is more speech. And there should be enough outlets out there for people to get out their point of view. We don't stifle speech. At least the government is not entitled to stifle speech or censor speech. And I think that's important in this country. And so I appreciate your point of view that there's damaging misinformation put out by right-wing news channels. The people who listen to those outlets would say in their view, in their perspective, there is misinformation put out by outlets on the left, and it begins to be a dangerous business for government to decide who is correct and who is not. But your question does raise an issue that we've discussed on the podcast before, and that is the legacy of the Fairness Doctrine. You may remember we had historians Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelitzer on our podcast some months ago, and they have written about this topic, both in their book and in op-ed pieces. And in their view, the demise of the Fairness Doctrine has contributed to the rise of partisan media and some of our polarization in this country. What was the Fairness Doctrine? Well, as they put it, it was a policy of the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, starting back in 1949, that television networks were considered public trustees. They were licensed by the federal government and they were supposed to serve the entire nation. And so the argument went, by airing and requiring them to air competing perspectives on controversial issues, something good was accomplished in democracy. The policy was intended to foster a full and fair debate. But as historians point out, in practice, What it did was it really led networks to avoid employing anchors or reporters with obvious biases, and so they played things down the middle. The media was a lot more centrist, as opposed to having a left-wing person balanced by a right-wing person, everyone was kind of sort of in the center. Conservatives did not like this. And so the FCC, under the presidency of Ronald Reagan, basically announced it would no longer enforce the Fairness Doctrine. And Reagan's FCC effectively killed it. Members of Congress tried to restore the doctrine through statute but Reagan vetoed that bill. That is what has given rise to a lot of television and talk radio especially that has proliferated on the right and a little bit on the left as well. And so while I do think it would be anathema to most people, myself included, to do something dramatic with the First Amendment, I think we should, as they say, leave it be. It's an open question as to whether the Fairness Doctrine should have been allowed to die or not. I'm mixed on it. I haven't really decided. I wonder what you think. Let us know your thoughts about the Fairness Doctrine. Write to us at letters at cafe.com. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after a short break.
2: Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions
1: Martha Raditz is my guest this week. She's the chief global affairs correspondent at ABC News and the co-anchor of This Week with George Stephanopoulos. Raditz recently embarked on a 6,000-mile road trip to speak with swing state voters about the presidential election. Today, we discuss the lessons she's learned in her travels throughout the country, the lasting impact of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and some memorable moments from her distinguished career in journalism. Martha Raditz. Welcome to the show.
0: Great to be with you, Preet.
1: We were talking before we started taping, not about the election, not about the pandemic, <laughs> not about the Department of Defense, but it's, a, it's an interesting thing that happens now during the time of the pandemic. We talked about which shows we binge watch.
0: <laughs> said, yeah, we got to escape all those other things.
1: Do you want to, do you want to share a recommendation?
0: Uh, I highly recommend Unbelievable, which I watched about six months ago, but it's based on a true story. I think it was three, four parts. Netflix, amazing. And then uh, my favorites are Fauda and uh, the same people have, uh, it's from Israeli TV and uh, Tehran, which is dark and rich and I've been there so I can kind of relate to that and
1: uh, love it. But you chickened out of Ozark.
0: I chickened out of Ozark. I watched one part and it was just too violent, frankly, just so cleverly violent and horridly violent. I, I, and I, so many friends of mine recommended it, but I, I just, I just couldn't do it.
1: It's very good. Have a glass of wine and try it maybe one and more time. And try it again.
0: <laughs> and it, wine makes me like violence. I, uh, okay, Well, it breathe. just numbs you. It numbs <laughs> you. I mean, look,
1: I don't want to, you know, different strokes for different folks.
0: Exactly.
1: Do you think there'll come a time when busy people, like I know you are, and I tend to be, that will stop watching so much television?
0: You know, I, I have to say, there's so much good television on. There's so much quality television that if you find something, I, I I don't feel guilty about it at all. I really don't. I read, and for relaxation with a glass of wine, there's it's pretty <laughs> great to watch streaming TV.
1: You've adopted that suggestion very quickly. I know.
0: Yes. Yes. For the re- for absolutely. The so I'm not I'm not giving it up.
1: So we re- we are recording this. Uh, in advance of when it drops on Tuesday, November seventeenth, who won? Who won the election, Martha?
0: <laughs> uh, wait, was it Joe Biden? I think so. I think I th- that's pretty well, much look, solidly decided. Some people don't believe it.
1: You people, by which I mean the enemy of the people, the press, the mainstream media, all say that Joe Biden won. Is there going to come a time, based on your deep psychological observations of the president and his team? that he will concede, or is that not in the cards for us at all?
0: I, I think the reporting is different pretty much every day. Some day it's he'll concede, other days he won't concede. I, I did the show on Sunday the 15th. I did the Sunday morning show. And we had taped and opened, uh, we call it page two, uh, about the news and, and you know, the fact that he hadn't conceded and about 15 minutes before the show, or maybe it was, uh, whatever, half an hour before the show, uh, it all changed because he tweeted. All right.
1: He did. Uh,
0: <laughs> he, he won because the election was rigged. So we're like, oh my gosh, we got to pre, we got to do that over again and <laughs> and we'll do that. So we did it over again. We included that, you know, he was vaguely conceding. And then by the end of the hour, <laughs> in fact, Less than by the end of the hour, he had said, you know, don't don't pay any attention to that. I'm not conceding, whatever. So, um, you know, who knows at some point, at some point, I guess it won't make any difference, but you because he'll be out of the White House But in so many ways, you know, we can we can joke about it, but it's it's so important to start the transition process. I mean, there's there's not anyone who's who's going into the White House and who's going into government who doesn't think it's important to get the information they need right now, and especially on COVID and national security.
1: Yeah, I mean, you observe how many Republican senators have said Biden has won, not that many, but lots and lots of Republican senators have said it's really important no matter what, either way for Joe Biden to start getting intelligence briefings. Is that, I mean, what what level of concern are you hearing when you talk to people in the Senate, on the Republican side?
0: I think there's some level of concern for sure. I, I think the only thing that gives him comfort is that Joe Biden has been there before. So it's not exactly he's the a, a new guy going in, but the world has changed in those four years since he has been there and he needs him. I mean, it is absolutely vital. So I think you see... At some point, maybe more Republican senators will start coming forward and saying, hey, we really got to do something about this. But but so far, there hasn't been a lot of movement.
1: You said something a second ago about how Trump said something at the beginning of your live hour and then said something different before the hour was over. And I guess my question is, over the four years or more than four years, if you include the campaign as well, have you and other members of the press ceased to be surprised by things the president does and says? Or have you built in some sort of resignation to the fact that, you know, these things are going to happen? Like, how, how do you think the press has adjusted over the four to six years of Trump being in the national spotlight?
0: I think you get used to his surprises, but he never ceases to surprise. I mean, that's that's one of the things that was astonishing. You, I've always sort of hated the term, have you ever seen anything like it? Right. Because that is generally said to someone who's standing in front of a giant burning building or something just exploded. And you want to say, of course not, no one has. But we say that again and again and again and again during these four years with the president. And there's just an endless string of surprises. I I, I couldn't begin to name how many times we are surprised or how many times our our White House correspondents have said, (laughs) we've never seen anything like it.
1: And it's not over. I
0: I think, and and it's not over, and the surprises continue. I mean, I think, you know, probably a week ago, people would have thought, okay, now he'll concede. And, you know, in a week from now, who knows what we'll be surprised about.
1: Will you be surprised if he runs in 2024?
0: I guess not. I mean, I, again, we <laughs> never cease to be is that? Su- surprised. I, I mean, it's it, you know what it is. It's it's a it's a Trump era answer, is what that is. <laughs> There's nothing you can say with certainty. There there just isn't. And and you know, trying to read him. I mean, in some ways, you 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 get used to that, and you can and you can kind of read him, and. I, you know, you might say, okay, he just said that on Twitter, but is that what he really meant? And and I think that's probably what happened with that Sunday tweet. Probably didn't realize he just, you know, vaguely conceded. And when he heard the news coverage, then, oh, I got to turn that around. So I, I guess I can see him running. At the same time, I guess I can see him just wanting to do something entirely different because he's already done this. Um I, I, it's just it's impossible to predict with any certainty, absolutely impossible. And I'm I'm just not the kind of smarty pants who who says who who says anything about
1: President <laughs> Trump with absolute certainty. It's good not to predict these days. Let me ask you the question about the press and its evolution a different way. Um, and I haven't gone back and looked at all the early clips, but I think it's the case that when the president said something, I'll use this phrase, non factual during the campaign, and I mean the 2016 campaign, and right after he became president. You know, there was a general reluctance on the part of the press to use harsh language to describe what he had done, namely lied. Fast forward to the run-up to this election, and you see people saying it all the time. You see people cutting away from the president's talks from the White House. You see real-time fact-checking. You see the word falsehood. You see the word lie by mainstream anchors. I don't know if you've done it. I didn't do a check. What do you think accounts for that? And and was that the right evolution?
0: I I think, first of all, you were... Presented with so many facts that just weren't, or, or there were so many things that were said that were just simply not true. And I think the press—I mean, it's not easy. Believe me, it's not easy, and it has not been easy making those decisions. And we talk about it all the time. And I think there was that evolution from you know this 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 isn't exactly true or he mis misrepresented to that was a lie. And I think. Most of us have said that is not true. I think the one thing you want to avoid, and at least we do, I think, at ABC, is when it goes over to main calling. You're a liar. You know, that was a lie. This was a lie. That was uh, misrepresented. I think you have to say that when it's just so out there. Um, but the name calling, I, I, I would not stand there and say you're a liar, Mr. President. I would say that was a lie or that was misrepresented because it's, it's you know, this is the office of the president of the United States. And he was duly elected to that office. So it is it, it, it has been very tough. I mean, what also is very tough is is knowing that there are millions and millions and millions of people who don't care that he states things that are not true. And I mean, I've had that experience.
1: Yeah, I want to get to your, your cross country trip in a moment. But you know, what people sometimes may not appreciate is that in certain courts there's a distinction in the law between what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. Appropriate to say that a witness made a misstatement or a falsehood or even a witness lied, but to call a witness a liar in some places is not acceptable for the reasons you described. So you know, there's a parallel in the law as well.
0: I'm glad I'm I'm glad I'm following that then. <laughs>
1: So you went, you went on how many, six 6,000 miles across the United States? Is that correct? Do I have the right mileage? That is correct.
0: Just about 6,000 miles. Did you miles. use your, how, you, how do you know? 6, you, how many
1: miles. steps is that? Did you use your iPhone?
0: <laughs> well, how about just the odometer? That's what we use. Oh, you were in we a vehicle.
1: You were in a vehicle.
0: We were in a vehicle. We did not fly. We, we took COVID precautions uh, as much as possible. We pre-planned the trip. I would say 90% of our interviews were set up beforehand, if not more, because we wanted to stay safe. And, you know, jumping out of the car, as I could do last year, and say, hey, you, right. um, can you tell me what you think, is just not safe. And particularly in places where no one's wearing masks. Um, so we set that up. It, it, but it was a marvelous experience to go, in the middle of the pandemic, see how people are living, see who's wearing masks, see who see who isn't, and actually talk to people outside of D.C. And I try to do that as much as possible. So we drove, you know, Pennsylvania down through Missouri, ended up anchoring the Sunday show from Boulder, Colorado, and then that very same day drove down to Santa Fe and then into the Navajo Nation. And we did not go to California because we pretty much knew that that state was going for Joe Biden. So we didn't go all the way there. And then we came back through Texas and, and through the South and, and Georgia and North Carolina and then back. It took about 10 days, two weeks, it, but, but really such a great way to get kind of a feel for the country. And I have to say that my feeling was when I came back that it would not be as easy for Joe Biden to win, as some of the polls said.
1: That's interesting. Now, y- you have previously reported from war zones. How, is that? <laughs> How did this compare to that?
0: <laughs>
1: United States of America circa 2020.
0: Well, certainly you you see some behavior that you see in places overseas when you're talking about democracy and some behaviors that are more authoritarian than you think of in a democracy. So I think you know some of that sort of out of the playbook and particularly elections you know it's not fair it's rigged it's not fair. I won um you can see that overseas i i I think conflict zones i uh, I used to um kind of say to people that when I first moderated a debate that I would rather be in Iraq because the debates are such no win situations um i mean i've I've covered conflict for no, 20 years i i was doing the afghanistan drawdown story and thought oh my gosh it really we have just entered the 20th year um we've been there 19 plus years we are in the 20th year 20th year of a conflict i've covered it really goes fast and it's it, it's extraordinary to sort of have that experience and that that institutional memory although i can't definitely can't remember everything but But to just know how those countries fared during the time from 2005 to 2007, I covered the Bush White House. So I covered that was essentially covering the Iraq War. But the most amazing vantage point was being able to sit in that in the White House, in a briefing, able to question a president about policy that you have seen what happened to that policy, that you not only see the policy enacted, you see the effect of that policy when you're in Iraq, when you're in Afghanistan. So that that was, that was has been an extraordinary experience. And, and in many ways, for me, the equivalent is going across the country and talking to voters and, and being able to see what the president does and the effect of that. And you really do, it's kind of the same thing in a, in the domestic world. The last foreign trip I took and, and, you know, COVID is horrible. It is, it has changed everyone's life. And, and you and I are lucky because we're healthy and my family is healthy and I feel terrible for people. It has also just changed the way we work, of course. And the last foreign trip I took was in mid-January to Tehran just days after the U.S. killed Soleimani. Yeah. And in the center of those massive crowds. And that's my last time I have done anything in terms of foreign news. And, you know, who knows when we'll be on the ground again, able to cover that.
1: So I have this question based on your 6,000-mile trip. You're a reporter and you deal in facts and data points, but you're not a pollster. And I wonder how you balance, how you take in information that you get anecdotally. So you go to Missouri or Pennsylvania or Colorado and you talk to people, presumably you're not picking statistically significant samples. You're not micro-targeting them to get a sense of, as a scientific matter, how the country's going to go or how that state or that community is going to go. So on the one hand, you have what's supposedly a scientific polling. We know that didn't work out so well. And then you are an intelligent reporter who's been around the block and has studied not only our country, but other countries. How do you take in this information that is just anecdotal? And had you turned down this other street, maybe you would have met a different family. You had you turned down a different street. You might've met a Biden family and they might've conveyed their thoughts about the two candidates differently. It's like the soft science, like this, the guy's got a big crowd, but the polling says otherwise, or people are staying longer and they're just more excited. And Like all that is soft stuff. How do you process that?
0: Well, I I think one of the things you do is, I mean, you do look at the polls. You look at the polls and you try to see what is behind them. And, you know, pollsters are asking these questions. And is that how these people feel who you meet? I mean, clearly anything you get from gathering um, either randomly or set up you know, when you go on a cross-country trip, it's going to be anecdotal. And I I think without question, it's anecdotal. But I think it gives you, so it's not a poll. But I think my approach has been to see what's behind those polls. And if people are saying they are voting more for, if, if they're voting against Donald Trump rather than for Joe Biden, then, you know, that's a way to a way to approach that and and helps you with your questions. So I I, I think that's the way to approach it. And obviously I always say it's anecdotal. It is pretty interesting though, because I do think just from my own experience, they do match the polls. And what you also, what was really quite incredible for the Biden voters and the Trump voters, the messaging really works. And you know, if they're getting blasted on their phone that Joe Biden's a socialist or whatever, there's a lot of people out there who believe that. So that messaging was was resonating. And, you know, some of it with the Biden voters, too. But I, I thought it was really heartening as people are incredibly, as is obvious from the election numbers, from the voter numbers, are deeply interested in the election, in politics, in all of this, it will be interesting to see how far that goes. Now, well,
1: have we solved apathy? <laughs> have
0: we, have I, we, I think we solved apathy.
1: Martha Raddatz, you heard it here first. We have cured apathy. <laughs> we have a we have an apathy vaccine, I, and his name is Donald J. Trump.
0: Yes, <laughs> <Is that> right. <laughs> yes, yes. It's uh, no. I think you I think you've said it. Yes. I mean, it has definitely changed. I mean, I found well in 2016, I did. Similar trip, and I've done them on the whole border um, during immigration. I've we've done many of these trips. Some of them shorter than others. You know, some you just go to Texas, or some you just go to Pennsylvania. But I I mean, I I can't remember the last time I went up to somebody randomly pre-COVID and asked them a question about Joe Biden or Donald Trump or any of the candidates that they were completely unaware of what was going on. And that happened quite a bit over the years, but not this election cycle, not at all. But
1: here's the corollary, if you'll allow me. So we solve or cure apathy. Is the necessary consequence of that polarization and divisiveness? If everyone's all of a sudden interested... That's
0: sure sure what I saw. (laughs) That's sure what... So should we go back to to apathy then? (laughs) No. How about we just go back to learning as much as possible about facts. That's what I would like people to learn about. And, you know, again, we, we can joke about enemy of the people, but it's it's destructive. I mean, I, it always is, it is interesting when, you know, I'm standing there and people have agreed to be interviewed and they'll say, oh, no, no, it's not you. Particular, <laughs> nothing personal, <laughs> but you're the enemy of the people. Right. Um
1: it's like everyone loves their everyone hates congress but they love their congressman right
0: Right exactly
1: Martha's great but the rest of you hacks in the media
0: right. Well it, l- let me just say not everybody says Martha's great for sure but um it's it's so divided I mean it is it is sad that we're such a divided country Although I had a a good experience in a neighborhood in Ohio and it was a neighborhood of Biden supporters and Trump supporters both pretty hardcore on either side. And the neighbors said they, you know, I mean, massive dump Trump signs and, you know, we love there's Trump Pence and there's Dump Trump right next door to each other. And I asked both those neighbors if they got along. They're like, yeah, sure, no problem. But man, as soon as they ever talked politics, it was over. Yeah. So they just never did. And 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 that's so central to everybody's life in the last year in particular, because of COVID, because of the election, because of all that goes on, that, you know, that that's a big thing to cut out of any, you know, kind of getting along with your neighbor. Right.
1: Are we, can you elaborate on something you said that I didn't follow up on? And that is after your 6,000 mile road trip through the U.S., you were less sanguine about Biden's chances. Why was that? What were you hearing and what were you seeing that made you feel Biden was not as strong as the polls suggested?
0: I think probably the enthusiasm and and that there were a lot of people kind of on the fence. Not a lot of people, but, but voters that we talked to who were undecided. And when I talked to them, there was particularly a farmer in Kansas, Bob Hazelwood. And Bob had voted independent in 2016, but had been a lifelong Republican. And he said he was undecided because he just didn't like Donald Trump's character. He didn't like the chaos but he didn't like Joe Biden's policies and he liked what Donald Trump had done for farmers. And I I think I drove away from that interview thinking, so it comes down to a guy like Bob Hazelwood goes into the, the polling place and says, do I vote for my needs, which I interpreted to be, he liked Donald Trump for what he'd done for farmers. Or if he thought in a bigger way, I don't like what Donald Trump has done to the country, he'll vote for Joe Biden. In the end, he actually did vote for Joe Biden, which which frankly surprised me. There he is on his beautiful farm. He he is doing really well. He's done well under President Trump. But when he went, actually ended up not going to a polling place, he mailed in his ballot. But he told me two weeks before the election that he voted for Biden. His nephew, on the other hand, who was also undecided and leaning Trump, ended up voting for Donald Trump and said he just could not vote for for Joe Biden. Right. So when you hear that nuance and when you when you talk to people about what it is, why you know what it is you like about Donald Trump, I mean, and 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 then I had the, the people who considered you know, Donald Trump a Water Walker. I mean, it was in in, in
1: Ohio. And wait by water walker, you mean you mean walks on water?
0: For these lifelong Hamilton, Ohio residents, Trump's word is gospel. Well. Never- I think he almost walks on water. He could walk walks on water, like, yes. Like,
1: like Jesus. <laughs>
0: yes, okay. yes. Can you yes. explain those people? Um and, and and seriously just said to me, I, I said, Is there don't oh, see the old getting shot on Fifth Avenue? Shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. I said, is there anything that Donald Trump could do that would dissuade you from voting for him. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. To me, he walks on water. That guy in Ohio, even though he voted for Trump, thinks Trump should just move on. You know, can't believe he's not conceding and thinks Joe Biden was elected president. So there were surprises from the trip. But I think one of the reasons I came back from that trip, thinking it would be harder for Joe Biden than pollsters thought, which it was, is it because I had the same feeling in 2016 when I came back from a trip. Right. And I remember telling some friends, like, I, you guys are discounting this guy. I'm not sure you should do that. But, uh, you know, I wasn't like, I wasn't shocked about it. Like everybody was on election night. And that was mainly because of the polls,
2: right? A lot of people that you
1: and I know, well, I don't mean to speak for you, but, (laughs) you, you know, people in the cities and people who are involved in the news and involved in public policy, you know, they have pretty strong you know, sort of worldviews about politics and ideology. And they and they generally, over the course of their adulthood, generally, not always, you know, my, my parents vote, have voted Democrat generally, but they voted for Reagan once, if not twice. So there are exceptions like that. But lots of people, they're not doctrinaire. And sometimes they'll vote for the Democrat, for president, sometimes they'll vote for the Republican. I mean, there are people who voted for Bush, then Bush again, then Obama, then Obama again, and then Trump. And that seems to a lot of quote-unquote elites who have firm and fixed views about, you know, ideology and, and politics and where in the spectrum they are, that seems ludicrous and almost incomprehensible. But I think we, I think a lot of folks who are in the business of analyzing politics and news forget that there are lots and lots of folks who can go either way every presidential election,
2: right?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, exactly. And I like that thoughtfulness. I I like that it's not Dr. Nair, I vote this, I vote that. I mean, that they look at the person as a whole, that they look at the policies, that that whatever it is that makes them choose, it's not necessarily party or, you know, if you ask people on policy issues, they they have some pretty firm beliefs. And if the candidate they like better doesn't comport with that, that's okay. They'll let some things go. They'll ju- they'll juggle that around. I, I just know, you know, we're, we're we're talking about Donald Trump and the and the difficulties of covering that for years. The one thing I tried really hard to do over every single day is just be straightforward and just say what you know. Can I do analysis on the show? Sometimes you bet, but I think it's informed analysis, and I think it's from experience. I think it's from travels overseas, travels throughout the country, that you can do some analysis. But I still try, and I think it's really important to just do facts, do straightforward, not make judgments. It, certainly, you can talk to people. I mean, I talk to people at the Pentagon, so I can say, you know, senior leaders think this, that, and the other, even though this is happening. But I, I just think the media needs to kind of even its keel and remember what our
1: job is. So the Saturday after the election, in cities all around the country, people erupted in jubilation and dancing and singing. I, I, had to, I posted on Twitter that I just had to explain to my teenage kids that this is not the normal level of celebration that occurs when a president is called, that this was something different. My question to you is, when you think about the person who says, Trump walks on water— And then you think about the person who spontaneously began dancing in the streets in Washington Square Park in New York, and you look at their different reactions to Trump and Trump and Biden, I guess. How do those two human beings ever talk to each other? Can they ever understand each other? Do they need to understand each other? Explain to us what's going on, Martha. I'm glad you talked
0: about the people who weren't jumping up and down. I I actually, our bureau is just a few blocks from the White House, and after we were on the air and I could hear things outside. I walked down to the gates, as close as you could get to the White House, and and watched that. And then, honestly, I did think about that neighborhood, those neighborhoods I'd been in with all Trump signs and, and what they were feeling. And, you know, I have no room for, zero room for any racism or homophobia, but a lot of people were Hugely disappointed that night, and I, I think both sides have to kind of understand that and reach out in some ways. I love telling the story, and these these are not particular political stories, but I did two or three years ago. National Geographic did an eight-part series on a book I wrote called "The Long Road Home," and it's about a battle in Iraq where. Eight. And I'm not. I'm seriously not trying to sell books here. I'm telling you a story about people coming together because um, I'm not sure the book even exists, but the series is terrific. There were soldiers who were in that battle, survivors from that battle who were consultants on the show. And there was the showrunner and one of the executive producers, is, his name is Miko Alon. You could not be more liberal than Miko Alon. He is a vegan... Cat lover who lives in LA. And those soldiers, many of them very conservative, probably some of them voted for Trump for sure. And Miko got along just fantastically. And I always tell people that that's where I got my faith in this country that we can come together because they respected one another for what they respected them for. Miko's deep respect for the military, and they had deep respect for. Miko's skills as a writer and producer and someone who respected them. So if you can respect one another and find that middle, I think it can work. And, you know, if Miko and my soldiers can get along the way anyone can.
1: Can we unpack your metrics for a moment? Because I think you said about that person, they're as liberal as they come, and you said vegan cat lover. So cats, so I. Uh-oh. this is new to me.
0: Cats are liberals? No. So on,
1: only liberals like cats?
0: No, no, come right. on. You're not going to get me on that. <laughs> Look,
1: you're we taking a position between... A, as yes, be- yes.
0: And my son, my son, who is, you know, is as kind of like jockey as they come absolutely doors cats and <laughs> all um, right i just
1: look i just wanted yeah, you to have a chance to I, I elaborate i am
0: allergic to them all i am right? allergic to cats i happen to be please i am yes i am too and you know sneeze like crazy so um yeah but i love cat lovers i love dog
1: lovers all right now you now you're now you're, pan- now you're pandering <laughs> so, can, can we switch gears and talk about the department of defense and you have covered a lot of national security issues and, and let me put it to you this way It's not a very eloquent question, but what the hell is going on and should we be worried?
0: (laughs) I, you know, started reporting last week that there are definitely concerns at the Pentagon, inside, outside the Pentagon about what Donald Trump will do in the coming months. I think they're concerned clearly about Iran and uh, I believe he's been talked out of any action, but I think, and, you know, clearly a drawdown in Afghanistan We all remember that the president wanted, he said, all troops should be out of Afghanistan by Christmas. That's not going to happen. We have Robert O'Brien and others now saying on the record that he's the the drawdown, and that's from 4,500 to about 2,500 troops but I also think in this case, as long as it's not done too quickly and I have faith in senior leadership but the, the military, senior military leaders that they would not put our troops in danger by pulling them out too fast or uh, not in the proper way. And, and Joe Biden has never been an advocate of having a massive amount of troops in Afghanistan. I think what people have to do when they look at Afghanistan though so again, we've said we are in the 20th year of that conflict in Afghanistan. I also think about you know, they're saying he's going to end the war. You don't really end wars just because you want to. You can get out of them, you can leave, but you don't really end them. You can end your participation in them. My one worry, and my bad, is that what Joe Biden will do is a counterterrorism presence and That means sort of keep an eye on the place. Obviously, you can't keep as close an eye on the place if you're not, if you don't have a big presence on the ground. But it's also, you know, you've got other places in the world, you've got to keep a presence too, and that you have to constantly look for terrorist activity. I was on what was at the time called the last convoy out of Iraq. That was in 2011. And then was back I think it was three years later when ISIS had overrun some of those towns we pulled out of in 2011. So that's certainly a lesson Joe Biden knows as well. Uh, They went down to zero, essentially, in Iraq. And that really did fuel the rise of ISIS. And it didn't take them long to nearly do in Iraq. I mean, I remember sitting in Baghdad in a hotel thinking, "Whoa, hope we get out of here. And I I mean, me (laughs) and my crew, and it was a really dangerous, dangerous time. And I was with, in fact, with the National Geo um, series in the book, a soldier, a general at the time who I'd met when he was a colonel in Iraq. And there we are flying around Mosul about 12 years later saying, I cannot believe we're still here and that we're back. And, you know, he by then was again a general. It seemed like an endless conflict. And, you know, that's still a very dangerous place in some spots.
1: Do you feel that if the Senate remains in Republican hands and Joe Biden is constrained domestically in so many ways, that his presidency will be defined by foreign policy?
0: You know, I think it's just impossible to say. That is clearly something Joe Biden has experience with. I think, you know, there are always cycles to when you're a reporter and your kind of coverage And boy, have I been busy in the last couple of days with foreign policy, where I hadn't been very busy with foreign policy for about four or five months. So I I think that will ramp up. Plus, he will be handed North Korea, which is uh, in worse shape than when Donald Trump took office. But every president before him, it was in worse shape before. And in fact, when Donald Trump took office, he probably had the most dangerous of circumstances there were. Because Kim Jong-un trying to perfect a nuclear warhead on an ICBM, that's what he faced. And frankly, even his diplomatic efforts, if if that had worked, great. It didn't work. Everybody's tried everything and nothing seems to work with North Korea. So we'll see what Joe Biden comes up with. Iran as well. I mean, Joe Biden has said he wants to get back into the JCPOA, the nuclear deal. Again, I don't know how you get back to the same set of circumstances because the world has changed and Iran, according to the inspectors, has more nuclear material now. So it, it's just a different world that Joe Biden's going to face, but he, he is definitely going to have to tackle some of those problems.
1: Is there any concern that in these days, while the president becomes sort of more volatile, and I think there's evidence that that's the case, or... Uninterested in his job, generally, not having a lot of public appearances and not making, you know, a lot of waves like he ordinarily does. Is there a concern among people you know who are experts in and out of government that one of our adversaries will will try something because they think there's some confusion here and there's lack of continuity and there's something real to be concerned about from Iran or some other country?
0: I think the concern lies perhaps not so much with Iran, which I think knows full well that Joe Biden would like to get back to that deal. And if they did anything, that would definitely mess it up and definitely get Donald Trump's attention. But I, I know we're at a vulnerable time. We are. And, and in fact, when new presidents take over, it's a vulnerable time. And people see what's happening. We've got a president in the White House who has not yet conceded. And that makes us vulnerable in so many ways. And they probably think the exact same thing you've you were saying, you know, is he distracted? Is he not engaged? He would say otherwise, I'm sure, but I don't know. They don't know. I mean, if you look at history and when attacks have occurred, Bill Clinton, when he was first in office in the first year he was in office, in fact, I think it was within months, the first World Trade Center bombing. Barack Obama in the first year was the embassy bombings
1: in and 9-11 and right.
0: George Bush, 9-11. Yeah. And ac- actually Barack Obama, I take that back. It was, it was, that was before him. Sorry. They, the embassy bombings were before him. It, it was, it was the underwear bomber, the so-called underwear bomber. Right. That's right after. In, in yeah, Detroit. That's right. right
1: after Barack
0: Obama.
1: Can I ask you about some other thing that you have done as a journalist? That's gotten a lot of attention. And I wonder what you think about the viability of this thing, and that is the presidential debate. You famously, uh, I think, got a lot of praise. You moderated a debate back in 2016 between Clinton and Donald Trump. It was the second debate. Your co moderator, I think, was Anderson Cooper. Based on that experience, I guess my first question is how hard is it to moderate a presidential debate? And then my second question is based on the experience in 2016. Were you surprised at how the first debate went in 2020 between Trump and Biden?
0: Yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> you were. I guess
0: I was, and I, was. I when we talk about I know, surprise, you, I know. you <laughs> told me this already. It's my, Whether he <laughs> never, <my dad. laughs> yes, when he doesn't surprise you. Okay, so so I also did the vice presidential debate in 2012 between Biden and Paul Ryan, and that was the most civilized, sitting at a table, conversational, fair exchanges a little bit combative but overall it was just such a feeling that democracy works and and i was so proud of that debate because i really felt like the american people got a good look at both these candidates how they perform under pressure what their policies were now fast forward to 2016 i'm not sure exactly what the American people got out of that. It was combative. It was, you know, why aren't you asking her? It was a lot of interruption. Um, you know, I, I probably got praised because it was like, move on, we're going on. I tried to control the debate. Secretary Clinton, we, we are moving to an audience question. We're almost out of time. We have, we have another. Mr. Trump, we're moving to an audience 29. question.
1: It is our country Mr. Trump, the Secretary Clinton, we want to get to the audience.
0: Thank you very much, both of you. But the 2020 debate, I, I just, I felt for Chris Wallace. Chris Wallace is an excellent moderator. I, I just don't know what you would have done. Well, the mute to, button,
1: there's been discussion of the mute button. And I guess that made its appearance.
0: Yeah, the mute button, um, the mute button, but the mute button, you know, you'd still hear somebody trying to interrupt. I mean, it was just so out of control. I, I actually think what I would have done is just stopped it and said, <laughs> I mean, but I said <laughs> it's easy it? for me to money Morning quarterback. I, I mean, just like either either we're going to play by the rules or I, I don't see any reason we should go on. I, I think I, I always tell people being a parent helps you be a good debate moderator because you just sort of can give them timeouts and, and threats, but... Also, any parent knows that sometimes that doesn't work. <laughs> and then what you, What do you do? It's like escalating force, right? It's like in, in you know, a diplomatic standoff. If you don't this do this, I'm going to do that. Well, eventually you have to do that or you have no credibility. So that that's a little tough in a debate. But that was just, you know, it was absurd. It was absurd.
1: Do you spend more time thinking about the questions or thinking about the ways in which the questions might be answered that need to be fact-checked or followed up on or more time thinking about how you'll control it if it goes off the rail, like, or all of those things.
0: All of those things. I mean, all of those things you do. I mean, you you start out, and I was a complete newbie in 2012 in particular. I was just, like, I was covering wars, and out of the blue I'm asked to do a presidential
1: debate. I hadn't covered politics for years. <laughs> Since you're covering wars, why don't you come and do this debate?
0: <laughs> yeah, no, maybe that was it. Maybe that was the reason. Um, and I was just immersed myself in you know, whatever. And then, you know, then you decide what you what you think people will think is important to ask about. You're never going to please everybody. That that will be on my grave show. You're never going to please everybody. Um, but you choose topics that you think people need to know about. You try to, I, one of the things I try to do is sort of get out of the way what you know they'll come back at you with, like, oh, please don't give me all your talking <laughs> points. So you try to kind of put those in the question. Doesn't always work. Doesn't always work. But, and it never works for the first question. It just never works. Um, You know, thank you for having me, you know, the blah, blah, presidency will be blah, blah, blah. So it's that, but but very much so you want to try and figure out if they say this, do you say that? If they see this. And then there's that line of, you know, you don't want to be the ticker tape fact checker. You can't really do that. So you kind of have to fact check in your question you know, you've said this, so let's do that. Or, you know, how does that work with this, that, and the
1: other? In the modern era, when you're doing a debate like you did in 2016, tell the truth. Do you check your iPhone? Do you check social media? Are you seeing how oh, afterwards? the world... No, during. Uh, absolutely i asking not. you during. I think some people do. Oh, wow. No. I think that's, no. that's why. No, 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 no. <laughs> I think that's why. I think that's why. Oh, wise. No.
0: I, You completely, <laughs> you completely get in the zone. And then remember in 2016, that was 48 hours after... The Access Hollywood tape. Yeah. And then, you know, Donald Trump brings the women who were accusing Bill Clinton. And so you really had to just get in a zone. You had to get in a zone. My, my one fun debate experience was David Muir and I did a primary debate in 2016, and it was the Republican debate. And David and I were facing the audience and introducing the candidates, and there were seven at the time.
1: How, how quaint.
0: And we, I say a name. <laughs> How quaint, I know. And David would say a name, and now we welcome, you know, now we welcome Jeb Bush. And I would say, and now we welcome Ben Carson. And he would say, now we welcome Chris Christie. And then we'd turn around, and they aren't on stage, <laughs> because Ben Carson did not <laughs> hear his out. name called. And my immediate thought was, oh, my God, I don't know if I can even remember everybody's name again to call them out again. But eventually they all came out. and, and it was
1: There's fun, footage of that. I was, think we've seen it the footage. Was definitely
0: Saturday Night yeah, Live. There's but, like a yeah, sheepish. Yeah, definitely Saturday Night Live <laughs> <laughs> material. Yep, yep. Well, you know, I almost, and I hate to say this, but I think it was because David did the first one. And David, you know, in his booming, fantastic voice. And I think Ben Carson was expecting to hear that voice. And when he heard mine, he didn't hear his name. It's like, yo, oh, I'm here, okay? Some late, <laughs> some, some A woman's introducing you. Let's, let's, well, I'm not going to say that. I'm, I'm just say saying, it. I think he was expecting that other voice. He
1: probably hates cats. We don't, we don't know. <laughs> Martha Raditz, thanks so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Great treat for me. Great talking to you, Brie. Thanks. My conversation with Martha Raditz continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Martha Raddatz. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preetbarara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-247-Preet. Or you can send an email to Tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattershor. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Calvin Lord, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Maley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.